Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, good day. Um, just welcome wherever you are listening, uh, whatever time of day it is. Just thank you. I really appreciate you taking the time to listen to my little podcast that comes out every week, sometimes twice a week, that has a conversation about film and music. Uh, when Ben and I launched this podcast back in 2016, all we wanted to do was to have a weekly conversation about the beautiful relationship between music and film. Uh, obviously, there was a wish list of people that have been instrumental in both our loves and passions for film and music and that relationship. And I think one of the names that we had on that list way back at the start was Martin Scorsese. Um, along the way, we've talked about his work extensively. We've had the joy of having his longtime editor, Thelma Schoonmaker, on the podcast. and. Today, we've finally caught up with our white whale on soundtracking, one of our white whales on soundtracking, as after literally years and weeks of hounding his team, finally managed to get an opportunity to sit down with the one and only Martin Scorsese. Martin joined me to discuss the exceptional, the beautiful, the powerful Killers of the Flower Moon, which is available right now on Apple TV, though we ended up covering so much more than that, from Taxi Driver to Casino, Rage and Bull to The Last Waltz. The film was scored by Martin's dear, dear friend and collaborator, the late Robbie Robertson. And we'll begin with his cue, Tribal Council. talk music if that's okay sure um right. and before we talk about killers of the flower moon i hope you don't mind if we go back a little while first to i i heard you tell a story about when you were growing up and you were in your apartment and music was almost circling you in a way in terms of come in the windows from other apartments it would be within your apartment do you think it's fair to say that from that point music had a kind of a connection with your imagination well there's no doubt i mean um even before that, uh, my father had, well, it was late, late 1940s, and they had 78 RPM records and uh, some Latin music um, yeah. from, from uh, Brazil, but also swing music, Benny Goodman Artie, uh, and, and uh, Tommy Dorsey, but primarily it was Django Reinhardt and the Hot Club of France. And so I was about five years old, and I listened to these records repeatedly. Thank you. 
And that's when I just remember the experience of it and watching the label spin around <laughs> and looking at the vinyl and watching the needle. And these images would come to mind. They were abstract, abstract images and movement. Camera, I guess what became camera movement. Yeah. And so ultimately, when we moved back to the tenements, we had, for the first few years of my life, we were in a smaller, in a, a place that was almost like suburbia. Yeah. But then there was a problem. My father had to leave, uh, whatever. And we had to go back to where my father and mother were born on Elizabeth Street in these old tenements. And they weren't fashionable the way they are now. Yeah. They're very fashionable now. It was a pretty uh, ugly place. Windows were open all the time, particularly in the summer. Music would come from other people's windows, whether it was opera or uh, swing music or uh, popular music of the time, whether it was uh, uh, Tony Bennett or Sinatra or Patti Page and that sort of thing. And the music I was playing that we had the radio on all the time. And a lot of that that time, the radio, the music was, um, a lot of that music found its way into Irishman, for example. Desifinato, for example. Music by Nelson Riddle. The the instrumental music uh, themes from movies, um, the theme from uh, the Barefoot Contessa, uh, all of these things were part of um, our daily life. Smile by Chaplin. So in any event, uh, 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 right before rock and roll hit, right before 53, a lot of this music was something that just scored our lives. Yeah. Uh, and and I would hear it from different, some of the old Italian people were still, I mean, the old, the, the, the older. <laughs> Your neighbors. Yeah. It, it, the, the old, the ones who didn't speak English, who didn't yeah. become citizens, and they were dying off in the 60s, but they were still listening to Italian soap operas and Italian music, yeah. popular music like Carlo Butti and. People like that. And Neapolitan uh, folk songs and Neapolitan love ballads and Neapolitan uh, pieces yeah. of music that are very famous now. But we hear that all the time. When you started going to the cinema, did you immediately have a connection with how important the music was in the films that you were seeing and the films that you were experiencing? Yes, there's no doubt. I think part of it had to do with um, uh, British cinema. A lot of the Alexander Korda films that were shown on television in the late 40s, the scores were by Miklos Rotsa, and his sound becomes something very, very familiar to me. And of course, he went up and did many great scores in Hollywood.
and there was the music of Dmitry Tiomkin, uh, which um, uh, the music for Giant or Land of the Pharaohs, for example, was was uh, something that was overwhelming. I think right before Elmer Bernstein came in, mm-hmm. there was other music that I heard in movies that stayed with me mm-hmm. and made me think that I liked the movie, but instead it really was the mood that was created by the music. And that music was by Bernard Herrmann, uh, invariably. Whether it goes from The Ghost, is Mrs. the Ghost and Mrs. Muir yeah. to White Witch Doctor with Robin Mitchum and, and, and Susan Hayward to uh, The Wrong Man, yeah. Hitchcock, and then, of course, North by Northwest, the great, right? the great, yeah, the great yeah, scores yeah. for the Hitchcock films yeah. and other films uh, that, that, that uh, Herman uh, did the scores for, Garden of Evil with uh, Gary Cooper. And so the Herman scores stayed with me longer, I felt. The Rotza, yes, and Tiamkin. Max Steiner scores uh, were basis of Warner Brothers pictures. Yeah. You know, that was yeah. something else. That was more almost uh, like the Academy in a way, <laughs> yeah. academic. Yeah. They had to be there. It's the famous story of Betty Davis saying to William Wyler, when I walk up those stairs, is it me walking up the stairs or is it Max Steiner? <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. It's an entrance, isn't it? Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. I'm but, here. <laughs> yeah. A Tiamkin score for Land of the Pharaohs is, is an extraordinary score. Uh, and giant. It's beautiful. Which which I believe was a bit of an inspiration. Well, there's no doubt. The there's no doubt. Yeah, I happen to be lucky enough to, uh, with my cousin, we went up to see uh, 1955, I think it was. Yeah. Up to the Roxy Theater in New York for the opening night, just to be part of the crowd, to look. I must have been 12 or 13, 12, I think. And somehow... Uh, somebody gave him a ticket that was in the crowd saying, I ha- I, I'm not going to use this, take it. So he took it and everybody went into the theater, all these people, it was, it was a major premiere. People yeah. were, oh, oh, Taylor and Rock Hudson, they were all getting out of the cars and it was wild. And we were just part of the crowd and he got this ticket. And so he went over to the, uh, to the usher outside and the picture had just started. And he said, we came all the way from New Jersey and we lost our other ticket. Could you go? We hadn't come from New Jersey, it was downtown. <laughs> And we lost him. The, the guy was looking at us. Yeah, yeah, you lost your ticket. He said, all right, go in. Don't worry. And we went in. I walked in, and there it was on the giant screen at the Roxy Theater. And it changed your life. The sense of the epic story, the way Boris Levin's production design yeah. changes, the interior of the house changes from mahogany 
to, as they get older, a white, everything becomes white, uh, the saga of a family. And then, of course, the great James Dean in it. And so that music um, in that film was, it was a, it was a life-changing experience that night. <laughs> with with these people that you cite as being kind of you know kind of really part of your introduction to film and music and then you get the chance to work with Bernard you know what's that like then? well the, the the thing was that I always felt that if I got a chance to make a movie yeah. the movies I would make obviously wouldn't be Hollywood movies I thought <laughs> well now they're Hollywood movies but then they weren't yeah. I mean there were movies coming out of independent world in New York that the leaders there were the avant-garde cinema yeah of uh, Brackage and, and Ed Emshvilla and, and Al Leslie and all these people. Yeah. And then, to name a few, there was Warhol, of course, there was something else, but primarily Cassavetes, who, who created the, uh, the films right there in the street with the very lightweight equipment. Yeah. And Shirley Clark, same thing, Cool World and The Connection, or The Cool World primarily. And in, in any event, that made it possible to make these pictures. Therefore, I was making a different kind of film and therefore, they didn't deserve, I thought, the majesty of the Hollywood score. It just didn't seem, why would you take, I love that. There is a majesty to that. We didn't, our movies were like marginal. They weren't part of this thing. So how could I have that music in there? So I knew the music that was scoring me was the music I was hearing and the music I was living with because I saw life scored by Vaughn Monroe and Chuck Berry, and um, Sinatra, and again, Tony Bennett. And I mean, I saw a life scored by that, whether it was sides of beef uh, being delivered to the butcher store across the street, or um, uh, rats being chased by people, because you had to kill the rats when you saw them. It was a very, very dirty area. The poor homeless or uh, the drunken guys on the Bowery. Um, In the meantime, Fats Domino was playing, When My Dreamboat Comes Home. And they're falling on the floor onto the ground. When my dream comes home, and my dream no more, I will meet you and I greet you. When my dream comes home, morning water will sing. So this scored my life. And so I put all that together, including Mascagni's Intermezzo, which eventually wound up in Raging Bull. Yeah. Um, some Tchaikovsky. My, my uncles gave me some 12-inch LPs uh, that were not 33 and a third, but they were um, still 78. And uh, the Claire de Lune, for example. Yeah. And Capriccio Italien and uh, 
you know, Caruso singing Ma Pari from Martha and Pagliacci. So I had those besides Benny Goodman, besides uh, um, all the swing music. And then you had, of course, jazz coming in too. And you had John Coltrane, you had all these others coming in from different, different parts, Jimmy Smith on, on organ, uh, and Ahmad Jamal, and, and that sort of thing I was hearing. But I was more towards popular and what eventually became the rock and roll. Oh, yeah. So that scored my life, and I realized that's got to be in the movies. I can't do a movie with a score. So I, I did that, uh, like Mean Streets yeah. uh, uh, is completely scored by my, my actual 45 RPM. Yeah, your collection. My collection yeah. has scratches on it and everything. It's great. Yeah. <laughs> so when it came time to Taxi Driver, I said, Alice is that way too. And Alice doesn't live here anymore. But when it came to Taxi Driver, I said, this is a character created by Schrader, Paul Schrader. And I mm-hmm. said, this guy doesn't listen to music. I said, and the only way I think it could be expressed, I knew at that time Bernard Herrmann was working with Brian De Palma and Dutch filmmakers called Wim Verstappen and Pim de la Perra in Amsterdam, and I became friends with them. And they introduced me to Bernard Herrmann. And that was 1960, no, that was the early 70s, because uh, Tax Driver was made in 75. Mm-hmm. And by that point, I was well aware of the impact his scores had on me. I did design the movie, however. I designed it to Van Morrison's music. Did you? Yeah. Did TV? you know him? Because he obviously no. later appeared in The Last Waltz. No, did I didn't never met him. I'm only over the past few years I got to know him a little. But And I met him at the... I didn't meet him at The Last Waltz. He was just came on stage. <laughs> then, that was it. Being I mean, Van. Yeah, being Van, the man. Come on, are you yeah. kidding? And and I know. I mean, when I heard, wow, the, when I heard Astral Weeks and when I heard... His other, Them, the group Them, um, and then um, uh, his other albums. Uh, but primarily, I liked very much um, Astro Weeks, of course, Madame George and, and uh, Like a Ballerina, and um, Slim Slow Sly, and uh, Cypress Avenue, and all these things. Uh, his language and his phrasing, sort of uh, between, I guess, James Joyce and Ray Charles somehow mixing together. Yeah, it's like such a great storyteller. Yeah, amazing. He just transports you. Yeah. He's, yeah. And, and, and suddenly get into a trance-like, very spiritual experience listening to his music, or cleaning windows, all this sort of yeah. thing. And so uh, I listened, uh, primarily it was TB Sheets, which carried me through. And then eventually I used it as an actual score in Bringing Out the Dead. I can't believe that you attempted it to The car. Reason. The cab coming through the steam around the harmonica. Come on.
version of that with that? No, 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 no. It couldn't be. It couldn't be. It couldn't be. But the whole sense of the movie is 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 Van doing those blues. The whole sense. And then I said, but the inner part is Bernard Herrmann. Well, that's really interesting because I heard this one. I, the, the absolute joy of chatting to Thelma a few years ago, and we talked quite a lot about you know your collaboration and where music as a as another collaborator comes into it. And also listening to you know how beautifully inspirational Paul Pressburger have been to you. The Red Shoes is an example of you know that twenty five minute scene where yeah they stopped the movie. It's the music of Hard Inside. That's not yeah kind of yeah you, you don't get it. I mean that's why I, I'm sure when we said this, that ballet enthusiasts or ballet uh, ballet aficionados are rather annoyed by the film because you don't see very often you don't see the full figure of the dancer and don't forget this goes back to any great dancer uh on on film or, or on a video uh, visual medium fred astaire had in his contract that it had to be head to toe did he yes so if you look at him dancing there are cuts but the cut is to another angle which shows head to toe <laughs> gonna go back and watch almost fred astaire movies michael jackson me. michael jackson when i did bad had to be very careful to make sure that we saw as much of him as possible. I had to convince him that in certain moments when he spun around, that's I was going tighter, yeah. and then we get the feet, and yeah. then we go pull back again and show the full figure. And and so, you know, yeah. so here you have the red shoes, and you don't really have that in the ballet sequence. What you have is what she thinks, what she's perceiving, maybe, what she thinks she sees, what she hears when she hears the she music, feels. what she's feeling. And the same thing, so I applied that to the fight scenes in Raging Bull. So incredible. You yeah, know. so you, you, the guy's in the ring, and I'm telling you, if you get hit a few times with those gloves, you know, they're athletes. You do feel and see differently, mm. and you hear differently. Yeah. You know, people don't even know where they are. And com- so you hallucinate, in effect. Yeah. And a combination of, of the red shoes, but then also working on The Last Waltz and filming, you know, a band like Emily Harris, for example, in terms of, similarly, we want to see her. You know, it's it's that kind of thing where you want to, you, we're, we're not interested in the audience. We're not interested in a close-up. Oh, no, no. You happen. see, what happened was that I I, um, uh, I got involved with uh, some friends of mine at that time in the late 60s. We came out of NYU. Yeah. We were making documentaries, et cetera. We're all working, trying to get a feature made. Uh, I met Thelma that way, Thelma Schoonmaker. And uh, we got involved at Woodstock. And at Woodstock... Uh, being there four days and four nights, whatever it was on the stage, uh, assisting the cameraman, assisting the director. And then in the editing, for the most part, I was I was part of the editing uh, for the first cut of the picture, and then I, I was taken off the picture. But the thing about it was that half the film is a three-hour film. Half the film, uh, 90 minutes is uh, music, and 90 minutes, uh, the audience. And that audience was part of the whole experience, uh, which was an extraordinary experience, to say the least, because... Everything worked. It yeah. could have been disaster. Yeah. You know, couldn't mm. even get food. They would bring food down for us. I mean, yeah, there were 500,000 people. You couldn't get anywhere. You couldn't, couldn't move. You couldn't get, like, you're like in prison on stage. Uh, the only people, I guess, the, the acts came in through helicopter, I guess. I don't know. Uh, because the cars, everything was stopped. Everything was stopped. And so I found that the footage of the audience was so complete, so to speak, in the final cut of that film, which I didn't have anything to do with, that if I got to do a music film, and I was it was approached, I was approached uh, by John Taplin to do who produced Mean Streets to do the Last Waltz, I would not show the audience uh, because I said let's stay on the stage, um, let's see what the perform, let's see what the performers do. How do they work a band? Apparently, 
the bassist and the drummer are like the motor of. <laughs> I, I didn't get any of that. Yeah, and they look at each other and they work this. How do they do all they that? Count. Yeah, they count. <laughs> and uh, let's stay with them. And you know, it really comes from. You should see uh, this great film called Jazz in a Summer's Day. Okay. Uh, by Bert Stern. It was a great, a great photographer, and uh, he just he did the. Um, Newport Jazz Festival back in the late 50s. And uh, you can get it on uh, DVD, I'm sure. But, you know, he has everybody from Anita O'Day to Louis Armstrong, Jack Teagarden, uh, Chico Hamilton, uh, Jimmy Jufri. It's jazz, shot in technicolor, shot in color, I should say, 35 millimeter, and rarely moves the camera. And so you're looking at Chico Hamilton play those drums. And it's an angle from below the drums looking up at him. And you see the relationship from his head, his eyes, to the sticks, to the drum. And as it increases, it's, whoa. It says, why is this so effective? Because I'm looking at them. What do I need to cut to people and cut to lights? And uh, You don't need to. Anita O'Day, with, with her vocalizing, is extraordinary. You know, um, it's, the I think, the essential concert film. There's no doubt about it. And so I decided, let's not show the audience. Yeah. Let's stay on the stage. And then as we, we didn't even know it was going to be a movie. And then when we saw the rushes, because I shot it in 35 millimeter, which was an experiment. Usually you shoot those things in 16 because they gave you the freedom to move on stage. But I didn't want that. Here we had, unlike Woodstock, we knew where the band was going to be. And unlike Woodstock or unlike other performers, the band was basically stationary. They didn't move around a lot. So I could place the cameras and I can move the cameras around a bit. And so we had six, seven cameras, and they were all placed very carefully on dollies, et cetera. You know, I wrote an incredible script uh, to each song. You know, basically it became like a, uh, an emergency uh, uh, where you, if you, all the cameras are suddenly broken, and we have one more, I need to cover so-and-so, he's going to be singing in the next bit, and she's yeah. coming out, and you got to cover her, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but eventually, we, um, uh, at some points during the six-hour concert, whatever it was, we did run out of uh, the, the, the um, coincidentally, what happens is that some cameras ran out of film, some uh, sync motors died. And sure enough, out of the six cameras, or the seventh was a handheld, out of the six cameras, like five of them had gone down. And what was the song? The Weight, the key song. It just happened that way. And so apparently, you know, we got some footage on the way. It, was, it wasn't very good. And so later, about six months into uh, editing the picture, I was working on New York, New York editing. Uh, Robbie Robertson said, I think, you know, we'd better redo the weight. And he said, in which case, maybe we should do this thing called Evangeline, too, and bring in uh, Emmy Lou. And then we could also do the last waltz theme at the end. And so we designed that as um, musical numbers uh, that I did on a soundstage. And those shots that I designed, like, they weren't, done with like three cameras simultaneously and we did not in the editing. No. If it was the first four bars of the weight, the camera would move from left to right, let's say, and a light would move on, a light would come on behind them. That was the shot. And so that then cut to the next, cut to the next. Mm-hmm. It built to the intercutting of um, the refrain, the intercutting. If you watch it, the intercutting gets more intense uh, until you put the weight, put the weight right on me. And that was the design. I pulled in the just feeling about half past dead. Just need to find a place where I can lay my head. Mister, can you tell me where a man might find a bed? 
his grin and shook my hand. No was all he said. Take a load off Fanny. Take a load to freeze. Take a load off Fanny. And you put the load right on me. And so that was done over a period of a couple of nights. That was then applied to also the boxing scenes in Raging Bull. The punches were like... bars of music, didn't Yeah, the, the punches were like, like music. In other words, four, three rights, one left, one shot. Not two cameras, three cameras. Uh, in some cases, that allowed for, in, 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 in an interesting way, the, the, uh, the weight and Evangeline uh, were very easy to edit because of that. Uh, whereas the actual concert was, you know, a real editing job because <laughs> you had to catch, uh, but we had it all mm-hmm. on stage. Uh, and in the case of Raging Bull, in some cases, a few of the fights were very easy to edit. Other fights were not. But even though they were all controlled, there's still something up. Because what happens is that you may design the shot, uh, but then a shot takes on its own life and it becomes something else sometimes. And so in any event, the concept was the same, yeah. put it that way. That was the start of this amazing friendship and collaboration with Robbie, though, in yes. terms of the, that has gone on throughout your, your yeah. career as a filmmaker. And his role has, has taken on different... Different forms, you know, kind of across different movies, whether it be he, you know, he writes a, a, a score. Yes, he did originally or... The Color of Money, for example. Um, you know, the other great composer I worked with was Elmer oh, Bernstein. Sure. Elmer yeah, Bernstein, sure well, um, yeah. he, he, was, he was an extraordinary composer for everything. He came a little later. I was aware, more aware of Rotza and Tiamkin uh, and, and Bernard Herrmann before Bernstein. Bernstein did uh, The Ten Commandments, I think, mm-hmm. and uh, Premier's Man with the Golden Arm. I think the same year. Same year? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. And Man with the Golden Arm is... <laughs> I mean, and then you hear Ten Commandments and it's beyond Rotsa, you know. Yeah. So I didn't... Yeah. yeah, and I eventually got, was lucky enough to work with Elmer a few times. But uh, Robbie did uh, Color of Money and, and a number of others. Uh, but he would also, even if he wasn't doing the, uh, the actual scoring, let, let's say in Casino, for example, Three Hours was wall-to-wall uh, so music. music. Yeah. And also mixing music, like yeah, yeah. that Ginger Baker over... Well, um, yeah. Well, that was something that Robbie inspired because he told me, he said, don't forget Georges Delarue. Yeah. And I said, Delarue? Yeah, you mean... Uh, he said, yeah, from Contempt, from Le Mepris. And we put it on. Of course, I love that score. And uh, the story between the husband and wife in that is similar to the story of um, De Niro and Sharon Stone in Casino. And he said, just listen to that. And I said, yeah. And so what I did was I took that and mixed it with uh, Ginger Baker's uh, uh, drum solo, a live, live cream on Toad, uh, and brought it in and out throughout the picture. Because the tragic nature of the Delarue really resonated for me. And then I began to realize, why can't we use scores from other movies? You know, I'd love to be able to use this, the score of King of Kings by Miklos Rotsa somewhere. Yeah. I have no idea, but I'm just saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but that almost says that you almost kind of come in with a kind of a uh, musical edit almost of the film. Well, it's pretty much so there. Much yeah, it's, you know exactly what No, I know. And very often uh, the scenes are designed to these pieces of music. Uh, a lot of the work is done. I kind of lock myself away in a hotel usually, uh, if I can, for like 10 days with a lot of music and then design the shots. But listening to music of different kinds usually builds to that. What I mean by builds to that, part of the process. Yeah. I don't go in and say, okay, now we're going to listen to music. No, the music is always 
shuffling around. I hear something. I listen to David Johansson's show. Um, uh, he has a show called A Mansion of Fun that for three hours uh, uh, on, on Sirius XM. And it's so eclectic and uh, goes back to uh, some of the music I use in uh, Killers of the Flower Moon. What were the conversations you had with Robbie about what you were looking for, 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 for from him for this particular film? Well, in this case, yeah. yeah. In this case, you know, Robbie, uh, uh, I think Robbie is key factor in me even making this film because I didn't really know Native Americans. I met them in the early 70s. I didn't quite know. I was naive and ignorant about the whole thing. I didn't quite get it. But when I got to know Robbie over the years, I began to understand more and I became more fascinated by the Native. Of course, he's he's Mohawk, Cayuga, and Jewish from the First Nations outside Toronto. So it's a little different, but the same. And so um, in this case, I thought it was a culmination of the work he was doing on his own solo albums that he yeah. made in the past 20 years. I just got really comfortable with the Native American thinking through him and through others I met over these years. And that kind of led to this movie, actually, in, a, in an odd way. I said, you know, first we want the explosion of the oil, and, and I want to hear those, you so know. So good, that opening piece. Yeah, I, I, and I said, let a rock beat come in there. Don't worry about it. And of course, a lot of rock and roll is uh, based on Native American music. Uh, Link Ray and others were Native Americans, but they changed their names in the 50s. I didn't know that. And so um, there was a documentary called Rumble yeah. that deals with all this, which Robbie's in. I'm in for a few minutes of it. But um, in any event, I said, I want that edge. And at the same time, I said, you know, Dobro guitar. And he said, what about the wailing, the wailing of the coyotes? Wow. Yeah. And I, yeah, that's amazing. And wolf calls played on guitar. And that rhythm. The rhythm is yeah. extraordinary. And so then the main theme of the picture, I felt that really because the story is uh, between uh, uh, Molly and Ernest, uh, this uh, love story which becomes insidious and dangerous, I said, has to, I need something um, fleshy and dangerous and sexy and dangerous. And he gave me that in terms of that thud, the thumping, the yeah. thumping sound, boom, boom, boom. And it suddenly uh, became, as we were editing, became the track that we kept referring to and utilizing.
then I would call him and I'd say, I need more of this kind of thing, and he'd send it, you know. But it was difficult because he lived in L.A., and he was ill at the time, and, and uh, uh, we pulled it together as best we could. And I said, oh, give me some more wolf, wolf cries. <laughs> Was Why that can't line we have, where yeah, Wally says he looks like a coyote? It's yeah, I want a coyote. Give me a coyote. <laughs> <laughs> it's alright. Oh well, it's it's wonderful that he's getting you know such praise for this oh, piece of work. Uh, I miss him terribly. I tell you, we didn't. I don't know. The last ten years of our lives, he stayed in L.A. I was in New York, but we'd see each other. But you know, it was like um, yeah. pretty much like a family, uh, like a brother. Yeah. Uh, very very unique and. Uh, Voice, that damn voice was great. Just the way he spoke. Yeah. And he was so cool and get me so angry. <laughs> get me so mad. I'd Effortlessly be, cool. I'd be, I'd be jumping up and down screaming and he'd be like. <laughs> I love that. That's where two opposites attract, you see. Yeah. Totally. And then, and then at one point I told him, you're trying to calm me down, aren't you? I said, no, I'm not. <laughs> Oh, listen, I could talk to you for hours, and I didn't even get a chance to talk to you about the clash who you wanted to have. Oh, I wanted to have them on my guys. I wanted them in Gangs of New York. Yeah. You know, I wanted their music. I wanted to score the picture. The film wasn't made at that time. Yeah. Maybe, it's too bad, maybe, I don't know if I could have made it at that time. It just didn't happen. I'm going home to put on Taxi Driver and play Van Morrison in the background. (laughs) TV sheets. Okay, yeah. Foreign bodies. Okay. You hear him say foreign bodies. You know, okay. turn up the radio, turn up the <laughs> yeah. radio. You want to open the window? Open the window. That's right. And, you know, a couple of friends are coming over a little later. Do you, do you, do you listen yeah, to the lyrics. You can see oh it though God. when you're saying it, totally. Yeah. Oh, thank so you good. for your time. Thank you. I'm thank so you. It's really good. great. Yeah, so <laughs> great to chat to you. Thank you so you much. Too. Yeah, you have too. a great day. to Killers of the Flower Moon that's the Don't Live Long by Robbie Robertson rounding off this latest episode of Soundtracking with Martin Scorsese my huge thanks to Martin for taking the time to talk to me also huge shout out to Scott and the whole team who made this happen Killers of the Flower Moon is available to watch on Apple TV so get yourself signed up to that if you haven't already and if you see the opportunity to watch it in the big screen please go and do that 
I had a great chat with Martin's longtime editor, as I mentioned at the start of the episode, Thelma Schoonmaker on the podcast, which you can find at edithbowman.com, along with all of our previous episodes. There are loads of Scorsese fans among my guests, as you'd imagine, so you can hear him talked about throughout many episodes. Follow us on socials. We are at Soundtracking UK and we also have a YouTube channel where I'll be popping up the video of my chat with Martin. Next up, we've got a lovely kind of double header of something old and something new. Uh, Laura Cartman is an incredible musician and film composer and she most recently um, composed the music for American Fiction, a phenomenal film that's been quite rightly nominated for many awards on this side and across the pond. And then celebrating the anniversary of, for me, which was a really important film in my kind of film fan journey, City of God, director Fernando Mirielis joins us to talk about City of God. So we have Laura and Fernando on next week's episode. I very much look forward to the pleasure of your company then. <laughs>